Today on Sagittarian Matters, making art during grief, making the most of an MFA, how to sort your friends, applying to grants, and more. With my guest, Beth Pickens. Stay tuned. Pickens is a Capricorn, an arts consultant, a strategic planner, and the author of the book, Your Art Will Save Your Life. She is a frequent contributor to Sagittarian Matters, and you can find her on Instagram at Beth Pickens Consulting, or sign up for her seven-week professional development for artists class through the Women's Center for Creative Work. Now, please enjoy my talk with Beth Pickens. Dear Sagittarian Matters, after working 10 years in direct service and nonprofit jobs, I recently moved away from my partner and friends to pursue an MFA. While I think I made the right choice overall, I've been disappointed to find the the university I'm attending is much less progressive than I expected, and the faculty mostly straight white men. I'm also experiencing feelings of inadequacy surrounding my own artistic skills. My jobs over the past 10 years involved a lot of emotional labor and burnout, leaving little time for an art practice. How can I make the most out of my MFA and develop as an artist while while not being weighed down by feelings of resentment, both about the politics of the institution and my own lagging abilities? And how do I avoid being pigeonholed as the, quote, political student who's not artistically talented? Yours, anxious in art school. Oh, I love that they wrote their own sign-off. Oh, that's really nice. A little, a little bit of behind the scenes that I usually make up the sign-offs. Before I respond, do you want me to spray water at the dogs? Will it actually work? Mm, I don't know. How, how ambient and how annoying is Sammy's pulsing bark? <laughs> okay. I, so there's two different things going on in this question that I'm pinpointing. I mean, there's a lot, but there's two sort of separate questions. One is... I'm a little disappointed in my MFA program and in the representation of the faculty and sort of like the institutionalization of an MFA, like what it's like to be in an institution. And I'm also hearing some insecurity and fears about this person's own art practice, which I mean, both I think are really par for the course in being in an MFA. So I think this person sounds like they're right where they're supposed to be right away i would say i don't i don't think you need to judge your choice of going to the program for one thing by the time you're 1 year into an mfa for almost all of them you're halfway done mm-hmm. so you might as well finish because you're already you've already moved you've already put in all the time and even if you don't love your cohort even if the faculty aren't quite what you were hoping for you can still get out of the mfa what people go to mfas for which is time and space to focus on developing their work, relationships, and leveraging the credential of having an MFA for building your career or your practice or finding teaching jobs after. So there's still a lot to get, even though this person sounds a little disappointed in their in their program. And the thing about schools and institutions is they're institutions. And institutions have things to offer, like infrastructure, and sometimes funds or structure for for students to learn and thrive in. But then there are also institutions that sort of confine and bedraggle people and they move obscenely slow. 
And so the fact that most of your faculty are straight white men, that sucks. It's probably not it's probably representative of most faculty across the U.S., although I'm surprised to hear that in MFA, but I don't know what, where, where this person's at. Um, so how can you get the, the most out of your MFA and develop as an artist while not being weighed down by feelings of resentment? So resentment is what, Nicole? I don't remember. It's, <laughs> it's swallowing poison and hoping the other person dies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So how to not be weighed down by feelings of resentment is you – having a good time and getting what you can out of the program and learning and growing and looking for mentorship and relationships, maybe even outside of your program and keeping the focus on what you can get will help reduce feelings of resentment. Cause nothing's going to happen to the faculty as a result of your resentment. Like you're going to feel toxic and feel bad about it, but they're not going to feel bad. They're still collecting their paycheck and it's all fine. So I think Look, whatever you're not getting currently, where else at this university could you find it? Mm -hmm. Maybe there's some mentorship and some and some colleagues and friends to find outside of your direct program, because your creative growth can be informed by so much more than just the classes you're taking. And then what about the anxiety that they're having around their own work, the insecurity? Um, I think that's I, again, I think that's just highly typical of being in an MFA program because for the first time, this person after a decade is completely focused on their creative work and you anxious in art school, the person who wrote in, you haven't had this experience before. You haven't been with your work so intensely. And this is part of being an artist, right? It's like having lots of doubt and having to work through it, starting a project, being excited, getting halfway in and being lost in the weeds or feeling like, why am I doing this? Should I give up? This is the normal stuff of being an artist that I, I would want you to sort of experience and learn and grow from. So I don't think that's a signal that something's wrong. I think you're just like probably growing and spending a lot of time with your practice. And then this last piece about how do, how do I avoid being pigeonholed as the political student who's not artistically talented? Other people's opinions of you are none of your business. Make the exact work you want to make. If you want it to be highly legible as political work, do it. And if you don't, don't. But anybody else's opinion is just, it's just none of your business. And you have to go through all the creative phases you're going to go through to keep making your next body of work. So whatever you're making right now is going to help you get to the next thing. And then that is going to help you get to the next thing. Is there anything you want to add? I mean, you know, I teach an MFA program and I just, everybody who's there deserves to be there. And I think that's something that students need to remember. It's something I remind my students of. It's something somebody told me in a grant panel. You know, I was judging grants, which we'll talk about in a little while. I was judging grants for this organization. And they're like, the first thing you need to know is everybody in this stack belongs here. They all deserve to be here. That's not in question. The question is, you know, who has the exact things we're looking for for this grant? And that's how I feel about these schools. They vetted you. They thought you were good enough. They didn't think you were too political. They didn't think your art wasn't that good because you've been working in the social sector. They thought it was good enough. Here you are. That, that's neither here nor there. Like Beth said, just make your work and yeah, get the most out of it that you can. And even if you're feeling grouchy, find a way to work those connections. Yeah. You know, I don't, I'm not trying to tell you to stuff your feelings. So that's something that I love to do. <laughs> we both do. We love, <laughs> we are feeling stuffers. I would also add that. Generally speaking, I find people who are in graduate school are a little bit depressed. Like that is not an uncommon experience of people in all kinds of master's programs. 
I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons for it. I don't want to speculate on why, but it's so if you're feeling just some bluesy, bad, no good feelings during your master's program, that's also not highly unusual. And it, again, doesn't have to signal that you've made a wrong choice. I think it's uncomfortable being with your work all the time. It's uncomfortable being with a cohort of people you didn't choose to be around. It's uncomfortable being with faculty that maybe you're a little disappointed in. And you have carved out this time and space to develop your work. And none of the outside circumstances can stop you from doing that. Yeah. I do want to say I have students that sometimes are, I non-veganly say, are sucking the marrow out of the program. Non-veganly. Uh, yes. <laughs> and I have students that are, I have students that are just there because mm-hmm. they're like, I needed another school to go to. And then I have, you know, because I was already in school and I wasn't sure what to do next, so I went to more school. But I have some students that are like returning students, older students, people that are paying out of pocket. Whatever their situation is, they're like, oh, I'm getting the most out of this program. Like I, So they, they will try to get my office hours whenever I have them available. They'll send me questions on the side. They'll ask for extra help. Like they'll try to get as much as they can out of the program, which is great because that's what I'm being paid to do. I'm being paid to give them my like very focused attention and I yeah. think that it serves them well. So if you're able to do that, even if you know 90% of what these guys represent isn't your thing, mm-hmm. if there's a part of them that can be helpful to mm-hmm. you, could do that. Yeah. And and try to see if – so of any of these mostly straight white men that – there may be something about them that you can connect to. There may be an aesthetic – history or knowledge base or their own work that you can find valuable. So try to look at them with fresh eyes Mm -hmm. just to see, just like you're saying, Nicole, I think that is so wise in any experience. Why not try to get everything you can out of it? Especially like if you just hustled yourself across the country away from your friends and this is all you have to do. Yeah. Just do it. Mm -hmm. Um, a question that I've gotten a lot and I've never, I've always avoided answering it because I just don't know the answer is different people saying, I'm with my partner. I really like them. They want to move across the country to do an MFA, mm-hmm. or, you know, which is a short-term thing, you know, that's for a couple of years. Do I go with them? I have my life here yeah. in the place where I live. And I never answer this question because I really just don't know the answer. Yeah. I mean, that's really hard. Like, do you uproot for a relationship for something that's short-term? I think it depends on the person in the relationship. And I think a person has to pay attention to their inner voice that's saying, yes, I want to do this or no, I don't. Like whatever the strong feeling is in the pit of your stomach saying yes or no, really spend some time with it because it's okay. It's okay to move with someone somewhere. It's also okay to have it be long distance while they're going through this short term thing. And and depending on where you are in the relationship, it's okay to decide – I don't know if I want to uproot my life because I don't know what will happen with this relationship. You know, maybe we haven't been together that long or I'm having misgivings. It's okay to also have them go first and then join them. So you have choices, but I think the f- the first thing I would ask a person to consider is what is the sort of little niggling voice in your stomach telling you? Excitement about the change, resentment about having to make the choice, just get clear about what is the truth of your feelings when you consider making this big change. Mm -hmm. And like we say on the podcast with any decision, if you're making it out of guilt, then you already know the answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Something. And if someone's like, we have to break up if you don't come with me, I think there, that's also important information. Nobody has said that, but I just want to get that caveat. If someone's like, well, 
you know, like, I don't know if our relationship will survive me moving and you not coming with me. The relationship might not survive a lot of other things too then. Yeah. Yeah. I never know about these things because uh, I've never moved across I mean, the country I, for anybody. I never moved across the country for anyone, but I did move from San Francisco to Los Angeles following my partner who got a job down here. And I, I was really scared. I was really scared because I knew leaving San Francisco, that would be it for me. That, that There was no gum going back in this in this still continued climate of San Francisco, once you leave, you're kind of, you're kind of out. And I knew I was giving up my apartment, the only place I'd ever lived there. I didn't know what LA would be like. So I, I've done that, but we'd been to get, you know, I had to give it a lot of thought and I didn't go with her when she went. I came a couple months later. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I had to wrap things up on my own timetable. I couldn't just like flee. Yeah. And then you got here and it actually... Best decision I ever made. There's <laughs> so many great things for you. Yeah. So many great friends and opportunities mm -hmm. and weather yeah. and everything. But I was for a while not going to come. I was like, no, I, she'll just go see what happens with this job because it's in a, you know, kind of a weird industry and, and maybe she'll just go for six months and then we'll check in. And I thought we'd be long distance. And then before she moved, a couple months before she moved, I was like, I don't... I think she was like, I, I don't... I really want you to come with me, you know? And, and I thought, yeah, I should. I, I don't, I shouldn't hang on to this apart. I shouldn't hang on to San Francisco out of fear. Like I don't want to do things out of fear. Yeah. If it's meant to be, if you're meant to live in San Francisco, something will happen and it will pull you back and mm -hmm. it'll be easy to live there. Yeah. But not, you have to like claw your way. Right. Yeah. I don't, I wouldn't. And I've never, I've honestly missed it only a couple of times in the past five years. Today's episode is brought to you by Shoshana Ruth Wechter, Michelle Lemoyne, Mary Pinson, Tony Pinto, Jill Soloway, and Christy Herod. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, including producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $10, $5 million, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That's hornet, like the insect, leg, like its appendage, at gmail. Thank you for your support. And we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Banya looks forward to it too. Don't be scared. That's her voice. Dear Sagittarian Matters, My sister recently passed away and I'm having trouble functioning and continuing my ceramics business that I recently started. Any advice for working and making art while grieving? I did start a couple of new projects to honor her. It's been tough to actually do the work, though. Sincerely, sad in San Diego. I just want to say first, I wrote to this person, obviously, to to talk, to just check in with them and to send them some information about grief. Oh, and that is so hard. You know, I had my my brother died. Um, and it's really strange to lose a sibling, whether you sort of know it's coming or it's very sudden. It's a very, um, it's a weird thing to lose a sibling. It's just adds another dimension to the grief. So my first reaction to this question for this artist was that you're going to have trouble functioning, doing all kinds of things when you're going through this intense grief. Grief has its own timetable. It does not happen in our timetable and it doesn't happen or look the way we think it should. And it doesn't stop at the part of the day when we need to do something else. So first I would just encourage this artist to be really patient. Just be patient with yourself. 
you may have trouble doing a lot of different things right now while you're going through this intense grief with the loss of your sister. I would start with what do you need to do to take care of yourself physically, emotionally, financially in the near term? Just kind of knowing that grief is one day at a time. So just for now, are you okay physically, emotionally, financially? Are you able to sort of take care of the basic things you need to to keep your life and body moving along? If so, that's great. That's like amazing in the face of intense grief. And your creative practice is going to be, there are moments where probably it will be solace for you and sometimes where you just can't do it. There's just nothing there or it's too overwhelming. And I think that is completely normal, completely healthy and part of the grief. So my advice is you just started the ceramics business. I would say how much pressure do you have to put on the business to produce for you right now. If you make money through another way and you don't rely on the ceramics business to take care of you financially, then I would say it's okay to turn down the volume on it a little bit while you're going through a lot of grief and maybe see if you can return to ceramics or making things in a therapeutic way. Something that is just sort of joyful for you or if not joyful, um, a little giving you some respite or relief throughout the day. And you can resume the business aspects of it and how to grow it as you're proceeding through your grief. If it is something you do rely on for money and that's important to you, then I would think about, first of all, is there anyone who can help you with some of the, maybe the administrative parts of the business or um, keeping you company when you need to do some tasks for the business that you don't feel like doing because the grief is sort of like weighing you down or making you very tired or overwhelmed. Asking for help while you're grieving is really good because when people know you're in pain after such a big loss, they want to do something for you. And there's so little we can do for people when they're grieving. You know, it's like when somebody dies, the first thing people do is sort of like bring you groceries, bring you food, offer. They want to do things for you. There's not a whole lot. And then as you have to resume your life after a funeral and get back to things, that's when actually people need help, but they don't often know how to ask for it and people don't know what to offer. So this could be a great way for you to let your friends and loved ones give you help and support by helping you with things to keep your business going, by keeping you company maybe while you're working on ceramics or doing the tasks of the business, but by um, giving you some comfort so that you don't have to completely pause it or abandon it if it's something that you need to generate money for you. Mm-hmm. So it's that's my, my immediate question is like, how important is the business to to your income, to your bottom line, to you being able to take care of yourself financially. Um, and it's so hard to do a lot of things when you're in grief. It's just really hard. And it's going to get easier and it's going to change a little day by day. Mm-hmm. What would you add to that? Hmm. Yeah, any judgment that you have for yourself regarding productivity, things that you're suddenly not good at like answering emails, you know, being responsible in the exact same ways you were before you get to just kind of let all that go, let the judgment go and just accept this is where you're at now. Mm-hmm. And it makes complete sense if you don't want to do administrative tasks or if you're not good at responding to people, or if you're, if there's people that wrote you after the thing and you didn't write them like that makes total sense. You came by all that. Honestly, you went through a huge loss 
there's no need to put pressure on yourself. Undue pressure on yourself. People will understand. And if they don't understand, then, you know, they're garbage people. And I want to, I want to respond to this one thing that you said. Um, I did, you said, I did start a couple of new projects to honor her. It's been tough to actually do the work though. Of course. You know, I tell my clients all the time, even when they're not in like really fresh, intense grief like you you are in, when they're making work that brings up grief, they don't want to do it sometimes. So I'll tell a client who's like avoiding their studio practice or avoiding a project, I'll ask them to talk to me about the content of the work because it might be, it often is something that's stirring up grief for them. And so they might not even be cognizant of the fact that, oh, I don't want to work on this right now because it feels bad. And I know you talk about this a lot because both of your graphic novels, which take a long time to produce, require you to spend a lot of time in grief and pain. Yeah. I mean, and I, there would be times I was, you know, for better or for worse, I was crying at the drawing board being like, I don't want to do this, but I was on a deadline. So I was like, you have to do it, bitch. You need to sit down and do it or else you're going to have to pay back that advance. And then what are you going to do? And so then I would be crying and doing it and crying and doing it. And that maybe is not the you know, the most healthy moment of my life, <laughs> but it was a moment. I mean, yeah. I, just, I had to work through it, but it was helpful to have other things that brought me joy outside of my grief projects, right. which I know you've told artists to do before. Yes. Yes. So because you make ceramics as part of what, of what you do, it might be useful to like, what can you also be making, whether it's ceramics or another form that's sort of lighter and not attached to this grief to this loss so that you have something that you can do that isn't um so profoundly painful yeah like because you might want to come in and out of that kind of a project yeah getting a break and if this is giving you money what's the easiest thing that you can make that will make you like you know is it like people love like a homemade spoon like is there you know i know like there's probably something that's like your ideal version of what your best ceramics could be but is there some lower hanging fruit that you know you can sell and get out the door while you're feeling these feelings? Yeah. Like I know, if worse comes to worse, I could just paint sloths. I could watercolor one sloth every day and people would want to buy them. Mm-hmm. That's different than my life's purpose, my life's work, things that revolve around my mission statement. Mm-hmm. But it's something that's fun for me to do or it's meditative for me to do. And it's still kind of within the realm of art. So my business has not ground to a halt. Right. Yeah. I think just... If you can be patient with yourself, all of what you want to do will will become restored. It just might not happen on your timetable. What do you think people can do for a friend that's grieving after the initial first week or two? Mm. I think grief can look so many ways. It can look like irritability. It can look like avoidance. It can look like mania. It can look like depression. I think consistently inviting people to things, consistently making direct offers. Sometimes uh, I think an instinct, of course, for a lot of people is to say, let me know what I can do. That's one thing we say to people a lot. And if you're on the other side of it, that's really hard to respond to because you might not have any idea what you need or want. You might not be able to articulate that. So I think sometimes for a person you know pretty well, making really specific gestures like can I bring a bag of groceries to you? Or I know you like this pizza. Can I send a pizza to your house? Or can I pick you up and take you to a movie? And even if they say, no, I don't want that thing, it might help them think of what they would like though. Mm-hmm. You know, by, by, by knowing, no, I absolutely don't want that pizza. I absolutely don't want to go to a movie. Then you might be able to be like, you might be able to get from the person who's in grief, like what they would like. 
Like mm-hmm. I would like you to sit with me while I do laundry or I would like to go for a walk or I would like to watch something really stupid, but at home, not out in the world. Yeah. So I think when you know somebody who's having a really painful time in their life, just like offer, offer something with specificity. And if they say no, then it might help get their brain turning of what they would actually like then. Mm-hmm. So rather than the blanket, let me know what I can do. Tell them, say, here's what I'd like to offer you. Would, that, would you like that? And then they can say yes or no. What if they say no? Can you just keep offering different things? Yeah. If yeah. you already know that you're friends. <laughs> yeah. It's a, if it's a person you know and you have some intima- intimacy with, yeah, you could just keep offering things. How about we go for a walk? Yeah. No. All right. I have a couple of cookies. Yeah. Or you can like, sort of give them um, categories. Mm. Like, can I offer you something in the category of food? Mm. No. Can I aff- offer you something in the category of activity, home? comma home no activity comma out in the world you know just like check in with them about categories of of things i wish that's how everybody initiated every plan with me (laughs) can can i offer you something in this realm and i'd be like oh interesting yeah i mean i think in the times things that really helped me in the so in the media aftermath of my brother dying you know you and many of my friends did just autopilot things i didn't even have to ask for people brought meals they brought fizzy water. They brought gifts. They just brought things. There was a steady train of things. And then afterwards, it was really nice when people would just check in with me, you know? And it's also nice when people would check in and say, you don't ever have to answer this. Because a person who's receiving all that communication, that's also overwhelming. Yeah. So sometimes when I know somebody's in the aftermath of a death, I'll say, I'll, I'll call them or, or text them or something. I'll send some communication and say, there's no hurry to answer this at all. I'm just going to keep checking on you. Yeah. Because you're just giving a gift. No strings attached. Yeah. yeah. I think this is good advice. I think so too. See, because now that I'm 40, I have a lot to say. <laughs> um, the last thing, we, ref- we referenced this on a different podcast, but I think that you were out of town or something. Can you describe for people really quickly your circles, your tears of friendship? Oh my God. This your- has gotten me into trouble before. Well, I know because then everyone who's sitting around wants to know what tier they're on. And then you yeah. <laughs> are a little honest at that moment. <laughs> I thought everybody had a tier system for their friends. I didn't know that the world just didn't automatically category, categorize all people and classify them. That's how my brain works. And so I have a tier system that is tier one, tier two, tier three, and then acquaintance radius. Tier one, there is no tier zero, despite what both my wife and one of my best friends say. They always claim that they're on tier zero. There's no tier zero. I'm tier zero. Or my higher power, whatever that is. That's tier zero. That's a good answer. Okay, so tier one is like my interior circle of people with whom I have had and can have conflict. Like we can manage conflict. Um, There are people that I would contact in an emergency. There are people that I want to talk to when something's really hard or bad or when something's really big and good in my life. I want them there to witness it. There are people that I have a close intimacy with. They're usually, um, the things these people have in common are they're very funny. Mm -hmm. They have, they say very bad things privately to me. (laughs) (laughs) We have terrible senses of humor together. Um, They're very smart. And we like share experiences, you know, there's a, there's a real intimacy. Like my close friends are very close. Like I, I know them very well. Um, it's, it's far beyond it's, it's serious friendship. It's friendship capital F. Okay. So that's tier one. 
And once you're in tier one, you don't, you can't really get knocked out of tier one. Oh. You're sometimes by circumstance or phase of life or where a person lives, it might affect the closeness or how frequently we, we can be together, but you don't get knocked out. So there's people in tier one who I don't get to see that often, but whenever I do see them or talk to them, the intimacy level is the same. Okay. So then tier two is people who could be bumped up to tier one um, or they're people who there's some, there's some block from us ever becoming closer. So for example, I'm not going to obviously name names, but it's people who, you know, we've never been in the same city to spend enough time together to Mm. really develop the kind of closeness that would bump you up to tier one. But if we were in the same place, I know that they would be tier one. We would become great companions. Um, tier two is also people who, there's some block and I know that there's a block to our intimacy. Like maybe I feel really close to them, but they're really active in an addiction. And Mm -hmm. I know that we're never going to get past a certain level of intimacy because of that addiction Mm -hmm. or, um, a phase of life. Like I just entered a PhD program. Okay. Then I'm never, I'm not going to see you. All right. No tier one for you, but maybe in the future. Um, tier three is people that I like, or I have fun with, or I enjoy seeing them out in the world, but I'm not pursuing plans with. You know, like there's not. Does this be an acquaintance, a friendly acquaintance? No, no, it's different oh. than acquaintance radius. Tier three is like people who've been demoted from tier two. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All of my friends are going to stop talking to me after this. They're people who've been demoted from tier two because I realize, like, oh, there's some fundamental differences to us that are just not aligned. Like, you're a person who can. Never be on time for anything ever. Oh, okay. Then we're just not going to have that many plans together ever. Yeah. So you might have to get demoted to tier three. That's pretty harsh though. Tier but true. three. Tier three. So tier three or tier three is like friends of good friends. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm happy to see them. We're not pursuing a friendship. Yeah. Acquaintance radius is just like the cute faces in the crowd that I'm happy to see you. I'm, we're probably not ever even going to try to like have a cup of coffee together Yeah. or a cup of decaf as it were now. Yeah. Um, Acquaintance radius is, that's just a place, it's sort of a placeholder, not even a place, that's just a place where people probably live that are just like the faces I'm happy to see, probably not, maybe nothing more than pleasantries. Any nemeses? I have few, considering how, considering that I'm a Capricorn, I don't have that many nemeses. I probably, my exes, and you know why, you know what you did. (laughs) (laughs) If you have an advice question for Sagittarian Matters, call or text our advice hotline, 971-361-9998. Leave a message. We might answer your question on the air, and we promise not to answer the phone. That is a Sagittarian promise that you can take all the way to the bank. I want to know really quick... There's a creative capital grant coming up. Oh my God. And I can see from your very beautiful Instagram page, very beautiful informational Instagram page, that you sometimes suggest individual artists consider making themselves a nonprofit Mm -hmm. because they're eligible for more grants. Right. And because they may be doing different things that serve the community that could qualify them to be a nonprofit. Can you talk about that? Right. Well, first I want to say creative capital, you get to apply as an artist. You don't have to be affiliated with any nonprofit. And that the first round opens February 1st, closes February 28th. This and the Guggenheim are the two grants that I tell my clients 
just apply to these every year until you get it or you die, whichever comes first. Mm-hmm. So Nicole, I hope you'll be applying to Creative Capital. I will. It's in my calendar. Excellent. Um, so yes, I t- I, I've made artists into organizations. The reason an artist might even consider like what what is an organization? Why would I become one? Is there so much more funding available to organizations than individual artists, especially in the world of grants? There's a lot more funding. So sometimes I'll have a case where an artist does a lot of programming around a discipline or around a theme or around a, part- a particular concern, and they do so much public programming that I'll think, oh, they're they're already doing as much as an organization. Why don't we just make them into an organization because then they can access a lot more funding. Public programming means like anytime you're doing a reading, anytime you're putting on a show, perhaps a live podcast taping. Anything that's publicly accessible. Mm -hmm. So examples of artists becoming organizations that we're familiar with are often choreographers. They usually have a company that's an organization. Um, Performance-based people, theater artists, uh, because it takes a group of people to implement an artistic vision, whether it's the artistic vision of one person or a collective, um, and they do public programming usually more than once a year. So the conditions for becoming an organization are there is some sort of artistic direction, either implementing one person or a group of people's vision. Um, so there's some sort of a mission creatively based, and there is public programming attached to it. Um year round, or at least, and by year round, I don't mean, um, every other week throughout the year. I mean more than one thing once a year that Mm -hmm. you do programming throughout the year. And to become an organization is actually largely just paperwork and semantics. So you first would just get a fiscal sponsor. You don't necessarily have to file for 501c3 status on your own. You could get a fiscal sponsor. That means another organization that has 501c3 status, tell me if your eyes are rolling back in your head because this is boring, you use their status as a 501c3 to be able to apply for grants and to access tax-deductible donations. So this helps you grow your funding. Mm -hmm. You get an advisory board, which sometimes is just a group of friends or people who are already helping you anyway. Mm -hmm. And you sort of write up in documentation, you write up what is the mission of this organization? What's its name? What's its history? When did you start programming? All that kind of stuff. Um, But I, I have examples of artists that early on, we sort of drew a circle around all the different things they did and said, okay, that, that's your organization. Now let's give it a mission. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's put some infrastructure around it. And it's really successful. A client I did that with back in 2010 has been getting, the majority of his income is now arts grants funding. And he has, so he has both his individual practice and his arts organization. And he can apply for funding for the same project as an artist or as the artistic director of his organization. And then what if you, how do you find a fiscal sponsor? What if you don't have one? Well, there are some big ones that are like nationwide, like Fractured Atlas, which is based in New York. That's one that you can apply to. Um, Cause there's some organizations that all basically what they do is they are a fiscal sponsor. They're an art service organization. So wherever you are, it, where, wherever you are. And the, again, and we're talking like U S based, um, nonprofit structure. I can't speak to anything in Canada or outside of the U.S. But in the U.S., you could look somewhere in your state. There is an, there's an arts organization that can serve as your fiscal sponsor. All it has to be is another nonprofit with a 501c3 status. Mm-hmm. That's the minimum. I always recommend to people to look for 
a fiscal sponsor in their city or close to them because sometimes you may encounter grant funding in which the funder does not want you to apply with a fiscal sponsor who's not local to you. Mm. They won't let you apply with, say, Fractured Atlas out in New York. Mm, I see. So I say start locally. First look to what are the arts organizations in your town mm. or in your city. So somebody had like a podcast in comics and workshops and mm-hmm. public lectures and things like that. Yes. They might be qualified yeah. to be a nonprofit. Yeah. The amount of, like for you, for example, the amount of programming you do, you could sort of decide what of it all makes sense together through a mission. Like if you look through the lens of a mission, what is all the programming that seems attached to that mission? Oh, I have a mission statement. You have a mission statement. It, it is the thread through all of my projects. What is it? Well, I like, I mean, it, it's like several sentences. So off the top of my head, it is, I want to encourage empowerment through self-expression. And I want to share the means of production to elevate and amplify people's voices for social change. There you go. So you could have, you know, Ponyo Productions yeah. and that could be her organization. And then all of the programming you do that you already do that's attached to that mission that's the organization's programming. Ponzini Linguini Incorporated? Yeah. And then you get a fiscal sponsor and you could apply for grants. You could do the whole thing. Oh my God, I'm going to be rich. Rich. Beth Pickens, People we... usually get rich from nonprofits. That's the first <laughs> thing you should know. That's, it's, it's just the name. It's, it's part of it. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.